uh, when, when I was in school, mercifully I'm not in school anymore, but when I was in school, oh dear, sorry everybody. When I was in school, I prided myself on being a, a good test taker. I don't know if you were in high school or college and you remember how there were kids in your class who would finish the exam like 10 minutes or five minutes or so, like be earlier than everyone else and would kind of like saunter pridefully out of the class. Um, that was me, I'm sorry. Um, and my, but my senior year of high school, I met my match when it came to a test. Um, it was the worst test I've taken in my entire life. I, I took advanced placement Spanish my senior year of high school. And, uh, you know, it, I did a good job in the class. It was a fun class. And in preparation for the test, which is like a day-long examination, I studied my vocab, my conjugations, my grammar. And I went into the test nervous but, but confident. And the AP, the AP Spanish test was different than other tests because uh, it wasn't just like writing and filling in like multiple choice. It was, you had to be tested in reading, writing, but also listening and speaking. So it's, this would have been in 2009. So I remember for a portion of the exam, you actually had to have like a recorder like that played something and you had to listen to it and it was part of the exam. And at some one point you actually had to speak into it. And then that was like, you said in like a baggie and it was examined. That they, I'm sure it's like way more technologically advanced now. Uh, and as I was working my way through this test, I remember feeling like a boxer who is just like getting beat up round after round after round. Like everything, I felt like I'd forgotten everything that I had learned. And uh, the moment of truth was like one of the final sections, which is the speaking se section, where I just, had, I just took out the recorder and I, I was utterly lost. Like I remember, I, I remember I was just recording myself and all I could remember was how my Spanish teacher had said, here's some filler words for like, the pauses that you're going to have as you're remembering what to say. So I was just like, I was just holding the recorder, just being like, entonces, 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 uh, which is basically the English equivalent of just being like, um, you know, you know, you know, um. And that was like, the, the, I'm sure the person who, who reviewed the test was laughing to themselves like this poor kid. So those tests, they were scored on a scale of one to five, with three being a passing grade. And uh, I scored a one. Um, so it wasn't just like I failed, it was like I extra failed. And uh, it was, it's failing a, t a test like that so grievously, it was a good dose of humble pie for 18-year-old, puffed-up, know-it-all kid that I was at the time. Um, but if you think about it, tests, tests are terrible things. And by terrible, I mean they're not just unpleasant, that test was certainly unpleasant, but there's also something kind of terror-inducing about them. Because tests, they reveal who we really are. They reveal what we really know. A test implies that there's a standard outside of us which measures us, which assesses us, and which judges us. It's like a mirror that reveals what we really look like. Is there anything more horrifying than that? And our passage today is about a horrifying test perhaps the most horrifying test that we can find on the pages of Scripture. So what I'm going to do is I walk, I'm going to walk us through this story, pause for a long time, talk about stuff at various points. But the two main points throughout this sermon are that God tests, God, exam, God examines, He commands, God tests. And the second one is that God provides. So first off, God tests. This passage begins, it says, After these things God tested 
Abraham. It's very clear Abraham is being tested. This is the only time we have in the entire Old Testament of an individual specifically being tested by God. Though if you, we've been working our way through the story of Abraham, you can see that he's been tested in other ways that haven't been as explicit. Uh, the first test you could say for Abraham is when we first meet him in chapter 12. We've, we're, we've been with him for all, around 10 chapters now, which is wild. And the, the first thing that God says to him as his first appearance, God says, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the first test, the first command from God for Abraham is a command to forsake his past, is to leave behind his father, his homeland, his family. It's basically a call to abandon his name. But as we've been working through Abraham's story, we've seen that these tests, these commands, they're also anchored to really high promises. So right after God says that to Abraham in chapter 12, he says... And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God promises, if you abandon your past, I'm, it's because I'm calling you to a glorious future through which the entire world will be blessed. And we've seen that the central drama in the story of Abraham has been just how is God going to bless the entire world through this man who is far past childbearing years, his wife Sarah, far past childbearing years, and she's barren. How will all the offspring of the, how will, how will he, his offspring bless the entire world? How will he become a great, a great nation? And in our last chapter, we saw the, the miracle of miracles, the joy of joys, this, the shocking, stunning, amazing surprise that Isaac is born, as God had promised. Isaac is their son, born to them in their old age, the impossible child. And God makes this promise in chapter 21. He says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's God's seal. Isaac's the one. He's the son. The big promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless the world, they will come through Isaac. Not through Lot, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And now, in chapter 22, God calls Abraham and gives him a terrible, terrible command. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, as if it was in question who he was talking about, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Uh, this is God. Remember, chapter 12, God called Abraham to sacrifice his past. This is God calling Abraham to surrender his future. It's calling him to surrender his, really, his identity. It's calling him to surrender... The, all that Abraham has built his life around. Um, I, I remember going to a debate in college between, I think the topic was existence of God, something. A debate between an atheist professor and uh, a Christian professor. And this passage was held up by the atheist professor as if God exists, you're, and you're saying this is the God who exists. If he exists, he's a moral monster. Uh, to quote uh, a famous uh, atheist who, who, named Christopher Hitchens. It died a number of years ago, but very quotable, very funny. It's certainly a force to be reckoned with. I'm thankful I'm not debating him. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he said this a number of years ago. He was talking about how he had three children. And Hitchens said, if I was told to sacrifice my children to prove my devotion to God, if I were to told to do what all monotheists are told to do and admired the man who said, yes, I'll gut my kid to show my love of God, I would say, no, forget you. And so should you. 
and the religions that say you should admire infanticide as proof of the love of God have no claim at all to be preaching ethics, let alone morality. Let's thank our atheist friends for their brutal honesty. Um, the, the brutal honesty of someone like Hitchens, he's actually not alone. He's actually, he actually has good company over the centuries, actually from within the church even, in wrestling with this passage. Uh, here's a, a quote from Martin Luther, who's uh, writing in the, the, the 1500s. He said, he's commenting on this passage, and he says, God, who formerly seemed to be Abraham's best friend, now becomes to him an enemy and a tyrant. So Hitchens isn't the first to, to be shocked by the horror of this passage, this command. And perhaps you're here today, and maybe you'd say it politely, but you'd say, yeah, I think I'm closer to Team Atheist on this one. And maybe you're just a weary Christian who's tired of pretending like passages like this don't exist. Or maybe you're on the edge of Christianity, on the outside looking in. You're like, Christians seem like nice people, I guess. But then they read passages like this and they worship a God who commands this? Here's what I would say to you. It's not going to be what you want to hear. I refuse to take away one ounce of the horror of this command. I refuse to remove the offense. Uh, because God is God. Uh, Abraham is not. I am not. You are not. Uh, this is the most offensive thing to tell a human being, and I would be failing as a preacher if I did not say it to you. You are not God. Your standards do not apply to him. His standards apply to you. You are a creature. He is the creator. God tests. He has every right to test us. And we have no right to test him. This is a God who is, who is a, he's not changed by our sensitivity, by our high-minded reason. He is high and holy. And for those of us, because all of us in some way are evil, he's also terrible. He is awesome in the true sense of that overused word. We aren't gathered here today. We don't gather here on Sunday mornings uh, to worship Barney the purple dinosaur, all friendly, soft, and snuggly. <laughs> like, no, we are, we are here to worship the living God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God gives and he takes away, and we respond, blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's another quote from Martin Luther wrestling with this passage. He says, no human reason or philosophy can comprehend this dark command of God. I'm not going to try to comprehend it for you. Why do I hit this note? Why do I go this way? Because, um, brother and sister, if you follow Jesus, a day may come where following his commands, doing what he says, living as the way he calls you to live, a day may come where it will feel like he's trying to kill you. It'll feel like he's trying to kill your identity, kill your future. It may even feel like he's trying to kill your children. 
And now as we read the rest of Scripture, we can say with certainty that God would never command us to literally kill our children. After this episode, it's like crystal clear that the God of Israel is opposed to human sacrifice, to child sacrifice, in contrast to the nations around them. So it's almost like this story is like the, the key keystone story of like, actually, no, this God doesn't do child sacrifice. But nevertheless, I have to say the lie that's at the base of all sin going back to Adam and Eve at the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. What they believed was this. They said, what God commands in restricting me from going to this tree, what God commands, it's fundamentally him trying to hurt me. It's the most fundamental human error. It's thinking that God's commands are him trying to hurt us. And it's not an accident that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Following Jesus is a call to come and die. I will punch back briefly against Hitchens, though. Um, As we look left to right in the universe, left to right around us, uh, with such brutal honesty, uh, do we see better alternatives? Um, If we were to name other lowercase g gods, and see how they fare by comparison. I would contend that ultimately they all at some point require sacrifice, or even more specifically, all at some point require child sacrifice. Here's an easy one. Um, an easy one, and I think we, we, we see this, is like if we surrender all that we have for career or for power or for fame or for money, we, in the process, we end up sacrificing our children, Right? That's, that's pretty intuitive, I think. Or if we don't have children, we end up sacrificing the relationships around us that are closest. And since I seem dead set on not making friends with this sermon today, I would also say that our political ideologies, those lowercase g gods, they often command, they often require child sacrifice, right? Whether it be immigrant or poor children, or whether it be children in the womb. Any God, a lowercase g God, I would contend, will fail this test. All gods ask for sacrifices, and we all worship one. In this God's defense, he does seem to acknowledge the severity of his command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Uh, Here's an interesting fact. This is the first time that the word love appears in the Bible. The first time. And you know I'm going, to get, I'm going to get to the point in this sermon where I'm going to tell you that God loves Abraham. He loves Isaac. He loves us. He does. And there's, some sweet, there's sweet relief, which we're going to get to in this story. But let's not, let, let not escape us that the, the first mention of love is God calling a man to lay down what is most precious to him in the entire world. This is the point. God tests He's terrible and transcendent. The anguish drama of this passage, it continues at a breakneck pace. Abraham rises early. He cuts wood. He leaves with Isaac and a couple of servants. They get to the mountain, and Abraham departs with, from them with just Isaac. And Isaac and Abraham have this short, but it's a really tortured, loaded interaction where Isaac looks at him and says, my father. And he asks, where, where will the... We have the things for the wood and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And throughout this story, I don't know if you caught this, but the, 
my son, your son, his son, like these, that, that language, it, it pops up like 10 times. Like it's really meant to draw out just the anguish, the emotional agony of this passage. Yet Abraham voices his trust in God in verse 8. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them, so what they went, both of them together. It's just a super cold sentence, imagining the two of them walking up the mountain. And uh, commentators argue about how old Isaac would have been at this time, tracking like Abraham's story and all the things that have been occurring. At his youngest, Isaac would have been a teenager. Um, as this is, so like a lot of the depictions of this is like he's just a tiny child. He would have been more likely been like around a teenager, according to the timeline of Genesis. And also remember that Abraham is over 100 years old at this point. Uh, so it's, it's probably best to understand Isaac uh, as a son who trusts his father no matter what. Kind of in the same way that Abraham is trusting God no matter what. And he's allowing himself to be, to be bound. There's no record of, of struggle or anything of, anything of that sort. In verse 9 and following, the breakneck pace, the, the, the drama just moving so fast, the breakneck pace, it almost seems to move into slow motion as we reach the moment of what's going to happen. Abraham builds an altar, he lays the wood, he binds Isaac, he places him on top of the wood, and then his hand holds the knife, it holds the cleaver. The cleaver is a better, a better translation. He holds the cleaver high in the sky, and at that point the angel calls from the sky and commands him to stop. Abraham, who as we've recounted, has so often been a flop and a failure. He shows that he fears God that he sees God as God and that he is not. And Abraham's done the opposite of Adam, right? Adam put himself in the place of God by scorning God's command, but Abraham doesn't. That's the test. The second point is that God provides. God provides. Uh, this, this passage is, is really similar to uh, the passage from chapter 21 where Abraham also has to send out, surrender another son, Ishmael. And Ishmael and his mother Hagar are sent out into the wilderness. Um, and and both the, in, both, in both of these stories, uh, Abraham has to surrender a son. Abraham has to, raises up early. The son goes uh, on a journey to a far-off place. Both some sons come near to the point of death, and then with both an angel intervenes. And with both, an angel tells, uh, tells the adult to look up and see God's provision. Very similar stories. Hagar looks up and she sees a fountain of water. For Abraham, he looks up and he sees a ram that's stuck in a thicket. His faith from verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. It's affirmed. And God's promise through Isaac will your offspring be named. It's, it's upheld. God provides a substitute. He provides a way. God alone is the one who stops death. God alone is the one who brings life. And then in the following verses of the conclusion of this passage, uh, God doubles down on his promises. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Those surelys that you see in the passage, uh, that's in the original language, that's just like the verb appearing twice right next to each other. It's like, it's God saying, I will bless, bless you. I will multiply, multiply you. 
He's, he's underlining the things that he's already told Abraham in the past. He's provided, it's like not only, he, he provides the ram, he provides the, the, the relief, the refreshment, but he also like provides these grand promises, these grand hopes. He, 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 like, he underlines Abraham's future. The very thing that Abraham was willing to give up, God confirms that it will absolutely, surely, by God, and God swears by himself, it will be his. So this is the good news of the provision in this story. As we reflect on the biggest things that we have to sacrifice to follow Jesus, things as grievous as Abraham having to give up his future, his identity, his son, God will provide for us. If we have eyes to see it, God will provide refreshment and life along the way as we surrender what's dear to us. And ultimately, at the end of all things, all that we have given up, all the precious things that we have surrendered will be worth it when we see our Lord face to face. That's what this story is about. How can I say this? How can I say with confidence that God will provide for us as we face our own tests and trials? You're going through stuff today that's, I'm sure, far worse. There are things far worse than what I'm going through. How can I look in you in the eyes and say that, that God will provide for you in the midst of your tests and your trials right now? Let me tell you about another son. Let me tell you about another son who was a son, an only son, whom was loved by his father. In fact, we could say he was the father's only begotten son, our Lord Jesus. As Christians, we read this story in Genesis 22. We have to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ because the story of Jesus' crucifixion and this are just so darn similar, right? Hiking up to a mountain, sacrifice of the son. Jesus is like Isaac, the son who allows himself to be offered up, trusting the father. Jesus is like Abraham, the one who climbs the mountain under grievous affliction, under a test. But Jesus, is, he goes farther than them. More than that, he actually literally surrenders his life for the salvation of the world. So you see, getting back to our friend Hitchens, um, God was not calling Abraham to anything that he wasn't willing to undergo himself. Except he went all the way without an angel halting him at the end. Um, the same applies to our own sacrifices as we seek to love God and love our neighbor too. There's nothing that we've given up for him that our Lord will not give up for us to, didn't give up for us too. So God's ultimately not arbitrary and capricious like Hitchens and the others would say. Actually, this whole test is just a prefiguring of a far greater test that God undertakes himself as Jesus marches up the mountain to the cross at a greater cost, which will secure greater provision, greater blessings, greater promises for you and for me. The cleansing of our sins, freedom from the bondage of sin, new creation life now and in the life to come, victory over death. These are the great provisions, the great things provided for us because of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. The first mention of love is God asking Abraham to give up what was most precious to him. That's the first mention of love in the Bible. Perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that the most profound act of love in Scripture is God-man, is the God-man Jesus giving up himself. Jesus giving up his life, sacrificing all, it leads to his resurrection. He's vindicated. Um, 
just like Abraham's faith is vindicated. And we, now we're united with him by faith. So I can say with confidence, because we're united to Jesus by faith, that we're, what we're going, whatever we're going through, whatever we're giving up for Christ, because we're in Christ, it'll be worth it. That's how it works. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, has this refrain in the New Testament where he says that we, the church, that we share in Christ's sufferings. Um, it's as if he's saying that the places this morning where you are feeling the most heat in your life, conflict with someone you love, unexpected life events, maybe physical pain that you're experiencing, these are the places where we are perhaps the most participating in what Jesus did. This is, these may be the places where we are the most truly Christian, which is to say little Christ. That's what Christian means. That doesn't end there. Because we share in his sufferings, Paul continues, we will also share in his glory. We are co-heirs with him. So the tests that we face the pain in our lives that reveals just how entitled, prideful, and unrepentant we are. These tests. Um, these are the places in God's economy where we earn our crowns. I imagine that when we're together in glory, the things that mark us, that make us, that will be made us, make us brilliant as God has totally made us new, it won't be our worldly achievements or our beauty or our intelligence. No. Our brilliance, like Jesus' like Jesus's scars, our brilliance will be in how we participate in the death of Christ. It'll be how we stuck it out in hard relationships, how we forgave and loved our enemies, how we endured unbelievable pain with thanksgiving and joy, how we, how, how we were humble enough to ask for forgiveness from our family, friends, and from our children. So I... This is the question I have for you today. How are you going to face the trials that God has for you? How are you going to face them? Uh, our, um, our previous pastor, John Alexander, he liked to do this where he give the right answer and the real answer. So drawing from these points that I've had in this sermon, how are, you going to, how are you going to face the trials God has for you today? Let me give you the right answer. The right answer is that God will provide for you like the ram in the thicket, like how Jesus' death led to resurrection. Ultimately, as we look back on our lives, God will be providing for us along the way. And even if we never feel the sense of provision, like in the, in, as we're in glory, like we, will, like we are taken care of, cared for. Uh, we, are ta- we are cared for. God will provide for us. He will provide for you. Let me give you the real answer. The real answer even though God, God, we can trust God's provision because of the resurrection, you may feel like you are sacrificing your identity and your future. That's the real answer of how things could feel. In Christ, the transcendence of God is maintained. He remains mighty, high up, holy, exalted, and testing. Yet in Christ, he is also close and compassionate. And he isn't asking anything of you that he hasn't undertaken himself. This is what Isaiah 57, 15 says. 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy, holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lonely and to revive the heart of the contrite. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.